It's September, and you know what that means, right? <laughs> oh no, what does it mean? It's Virgo season. <laughs> How come y'all uh, uh, females acting like that because uh, of the month it is? Wait, isn't it? Wait, it's Libra season, no? Or is uh, that, I, I don't you're know. a Libra. I, I, first of all, I but don't know. But your birthday is not in September. No, it's not. Well, America's birthday. Oh, it's coming up soon, myself. though. We don't have to talk. I don't want to. Do- I guess it says it on the internet. It yeah, does. I get it. My birthday. Wait, is why is on- your birthday on the internet? What are you talking? Oh, because of like, yeah, yeah. My birthday is on the freaking internet. It's because you I get, get that taken wished- down. I can't get it taken down. I've well, tried they to get add it nicknames down. anytime you want. Here's what they do now. You- what? Okay, this is what you should do now. Hey, Brace, when's your birthday? October fourth. Brace, when's your other birthday? October. Are you trying to get to say my real birthday? October 13th. No, I'm trying to get you to say multiple new birthdays so they okay. add them like nickname. I don't know how Wikipedia uh, works. My birthday is in November and it's the worst day in November. It's the day in November that you you start thinking about, oh, my family's going to be so mean to me because I'm 35 and I'm mentally crazy and I can't, I'm all so depressed. And my family's going to get mad at me at Thanksgiving because of my unorthodox political views that I learned on the internet that I'm <sighs> insisting on telling them. Here's my thing. That's Why are you talking birthday? about that at the Thanksgiving table? Thanksgiving is by far the worst holiday. It's no, dog shit. What? Are you fucking kidding me? No gifts. Uh, and then bad. I don't like Thanksgiving food. What? Yeah. First, well, okay. Hey, hey we have already this? talked about Let's, how I think you should come to my place for Thanksgiving. So we've already okay, talked about that. Maybe, one. Maybe, Two, okay, you okay. have never had my Thanksgiving. Three, who says my Thanksgiving doesn't have gifts? You wouldn't know because okay. you've never been. Okay, Four, I'll a gourd. You Sorry. could get more than a gourd. Okay, yeah. Also, a it's a gourd. Uh, well, gourd. Uh huh. Go on. What's the fourth thing that you're yelling at me? It's a great holiday. Ladies and gentlemen, we could not think of an intro for the Peter Dale Scott uh, guest. Okay. We couldn't think of an intro for the Peter Dale Scott guest episode. So I guess we just talked about Thanksgiving. Oh my God. You know Uh, why? Okay. You know what? I'll tell him. You know why we talked about Thanksgiving? Why? Because we were talking about how in our first take, it was 9-11. And that's like a holiday, basically. Something like that. That's where we went from A to B to C. I'm just mapping it out for people. The truth the is, the red it's string on the board. Summer's over. <laughs> Summer's over. It's nine eleven. The, the long winter begins. Yeah. Welcome to. My name is Brace. <laughs> I'm Liz. Producer is Young Chomsky, and this <laughs> has been True and On. Episode over. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been recording for, I mean, I can know you can see the little number on the little right hand side there next to the 15 second skip mark. That you do whenever Liz starts yelling at me, and you can see how long this episode is, so you might understand. Ah, I'm feeling a little freaky right now. Yeah, a little, late, little loopy. We've been talking for a long time, which means we should get right into it. We got a big episode today because I do want to say, actually, though, before yeah. we say <laughs> anymore, 
don't you little piggies worry. We've got a lot of 9-11 content coming. This mm-hmm. is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And uh, to get ready for this episode, I was actually re-listening to some clips of our six-part 9-11 series with Ben, whose last name you'll find out on the episode as he's he's coming out. It's his big coming out episode. Um, but I was listening to it and apparently it, whoa, during one of the episodes I said, when you think 9-11, think true anon. Which, at the time, I think we but we all kind of agreed was maybe a bad move. Yes. But you know, now I got to say, maybe not so bad. Yeah, that advice about not associating yourself with acts of terror, I really do want to take to heart. Considering that I, I, you know, regretfully did go through all of my four years, six years at Yale uh, as the Lockerbie guy, and <laughs> I apologize for that. I made a lot of amends for that. Um, and as part of those amends, we have a long episode coming up and I am just going to segue us into it right now by ending this sentence. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a long time coming. Another September has reared its ugly head from the swamps of history and is devouring us like we are rodents on the uh, on the old seashore there. We have with us today our largest retinue yet. Um, a couple of returning guests. Uh, you know them. You despise them for having to hear their voices next to our disgusting tones for so many hours. We have Ben Howard here, uh, who is an independent researcher who has appeared on our 9-11 and JFK series. We have Aaron Good, who is now, I can give him a title, of editor-at-large of Covert Action Magazine and a host of upcoming Covert Action Magazine podcast. Covert Action Bulletin. And uh, I am honored to say we also have with us Professor Peter Dale Scott, the author of, I would say, dozens of books, I think is fair to say, but uh, you know, famously, The Road to 9-11, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, The War Conspiracy, numerous books of poetry. If you have listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know we have referenced his work numerous times uh, and have absolutely incorporated his analysis into our own. Uh, and it is a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, welcome, everybody. Glad to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you three here also because uh, next week is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is still feels very strange to say out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, you three have co-authored a piece that is forthcoming in Covert Action Magazine kind of taking a look back at 9-11 and trying to situate, you know, a lot of people are doing this. Uh, A lot of work is coming out now because of the anniversary, trying to, you know, the legacy of 9-11, what, you know, you know, how has the world changed, you know, what have you. Your piece, however, um, I think does an incredible job of really situating 9-11, you know, what right before 9-11 and what happened right after 9-11 and kind of trying to take a look at, you know, how can we understand 9-11 in maybe a larger context and 
you know, how has it shifted the shape of the government since? After 9-11, the U.S. embarked on a very ambitious agenda domestically and abroad. We're familiar now with a lot of the excesses of the uh, police state, so to speak, in the United States in response to 9-11, like the Patriot Act and, uh, you know, the National Defense Authorization Act, which years later uh, gave the U.S. more powers. And basically since 9-11, you've seen an erosion of civil liberties in the United States and uh, a whole lot of other violations that emerged from this related to the wars, such as um, to, you know, the torture regime, enhanced so-called enhanced interrogation, um, extraordinary rendition, you know, where they kidnap you and send you to, uh, you know, uh, where to Turkey or something to be tortured or all these other countries where they do allow torture. Um, and, uh, you know, warrantless wiretapping, massive amounts of things justified in response to 9-11, the creation of uh, the Homeland Security Department, for example, and a whole lot of other um actions taken by the state that really uh, served to weaken civil liberties in America and constitutional protections from the state. And of course, internet and, and Americans got off easy because it was internationally that the worst consequences were felt by people, especially those two 9-11 wars. And so here, uh, you know, we're it's 20 years later, we've just been essentially kicked out of Afghanistan and uh we are left to to wonder what this anniversary really what what is the lasting significance of it and so covert action magazine gave us a platform to be able to try to talk about how we got to this point um and peter was willing to uh help us with this it was actually his second article that was a sequel to the other article that we did last december on the Masood assassination, and it grew into mm. this. But and, it, and there was a lot of stuff in his, in that original draft that we didn't put into the Masood piece that dealt with um, Richard Blee and Kofor Black and the intelligence uh, fiascos and scandals that were around this whole 9-11 event. And I knew that Ben had done a lot of research into that area more than me, that he knew this stuff better than me He'd read Kevin Fenton's book, and he did that whole six-part series with you, with you all. And so I had the idea that Ben could join up with us to help us create a more powerful article. And I'm really glad that I did because I think that we put out a very good uh, – it's, it's a long three-part article, but I don't think there's any filler in it. I think that it, it covers the, uh, the use of Islamists in the U.S., and really even even a little bit of the British Empire going back to the early uh, earlier parts of the 20th century up to uh, you know 9/11 and I'll probably in the conclusion mention how we've kind of gone back to using these guys again these Islamists and uh, the outcome here with lots of input from from Peter uh, has been uh, you know something that I'm really heartened by and happy to be uh, releasing there just as I'm starting on it at Covert Action Magazine, which is, you know, uh, has a long and storied history. So um, this article really uh, is one that I hope uh, gets some circulation and gets people thinking about not just the day of 9-11 and the bigger issues of unsolved, you know, matters related to 9-11, but the significance of it and what it says about uh, the system that we live under.
Yeah, I just want to add to Aaron's list of what happened after 9-11, which should remind us that I think no other single event, not even the assassination of President Kennedy, no other single event has made such a revolutionary change in the government of this country. First of all, as Aaron mentioned, the Department of Homeland Security, which among all the other beneficial things that it does is given, in effect, a private army to the president, whom Trump was quite willing to use when he intervened, for example, at Portland and tried to take the management of affairs away from local enforcement. He, he drummed up something like 60,000 troops out of the border patrol. It's the various aspects of homeland security. Uh, that is a major change in this country. But equally important is the creation of a military command for North America. Now, that sounds very abstract to most people who don't see it because it's so far above their heads. But historically, the mission of the Pentagon has been to protect America against external enemies. Um, it, we've had the Insurrection Act, and we've had occasional interventions when things get out of control. Uh, but uh, now, as a regular uh, ongoing situation, the military is overlooking what happens in America in the same way that it overlooks what happens in South America. It is, for some time, has had a Southcom to deal with South America, a Centcom to deal with Central Asia, and now there is a Northcom to deal with North America, which means it, it, it's legitimately conducting uh, uh, intelligence and more alarmingly is working together with local law enforcement uh, in so-called fusion centers where the FBI is there and quite major private corporations, which again, most people haven't heard about, like SAIC, who's Alan Hamilton, who consume an enormous amount of the intelligence budget uh, allocated to by 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 Congress, something like seventy percent of the intelligence budget is in fact not used by the American intelligence agencies. It's farmed out. It's contracted to these huge private contractors, of which the two biggest are uh, SAIC, Booz Allen, Hamilton, and there's a third one which is just in the news recently, CACI which has been faulted for, first of all, making huge profits over the, out of the Afghan war, and then secondly, vigorously campaigning against the idea of pulling out of Afghanistan. They, so they, are, they have a very visible conflict of interest. And all of this we can take back to 9-11. I'll say for my own part, um, I think Aaron and Professor Scott uh, covered a lot of the details really well. But uh, for me, what I am most interested in is is the expansion. You know, the U.S. has long been involved in West Asia, West Asia and Central Asia, but uh, it essentially provided a blank check uh, for both covert and overt military involvement in the region uh, beyond just, you know, the direct two 9-11 wars, Afghanistan and Iraq. But those, you know, provided a foundation for involvement in Syria in Libya, uh, really the entire region. And of course, the fact that there was a, 
a forward presence now of a, a large number of American soldiers, which hadn't existed uh, prior to that to such a degree. Uh, it significantly affected the internal politics of the region. Uh, and it's, it's just now starting to change where some of these regional alliances, which you would expect, you know, normal geopolitics is, is countries dealing with other countries in their region. Uh, and the U.S. was really able to mess with that for, for the past 20 years uh, by propping up their, their client states in the Gulf and, and in other places in West Asia and Central Asia with a, a huge number of American soldiers and a huge number of covert uh, operators as well. Uh, so the the effects are still felt today. I mean, uh, even Biden's speech announcing that, you know, the war in Afghanistan is over, uh, he sort of implied that the U.S. has unlimited freedom to strike against this ISIS Khorasan group. Uh, and that's that's essentially a, a, an open ended thing that was, you know, it, initiated by 9-11. It does not seem like it's it's going to stop anytime soon. Uh, so the the effect on that region has been. Uh, de- pretty devastating, uh, and you know, e- even with the supposed end of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, it does not seem uh, it- it's-, it's starting to turn just a little bit. But it- but it's it's been a twenty years of of uh, uh, serious problems for that region because of the American involvement. Yeah, something we talked about with you in our in our nine eleven series is the uh, is the. Ex- the fact that this you can trace a lot of this back not just to Operation Cyclone but to all the other things surrounding Operation Cyclone. I think you guys do a really good job in your article of talking about how you know the affairs in the Balkans and uh, in 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 Baku are also connected to this. And and it just I think to me it's been so sort of astounding to see that you know as the uh, as the war draws to a close and kind of everybody comes out for their not either their final bow not their final bow but a bow. Uh, or just for a little spot in the in the in the media. I mean, you have so many of these same characters. Whenever Golbadin uh, gets in front of the cameras, it always sort of makes you chuckle because this guy has been around for, I mean, Christ, decades and decades and decades, sort of always at the center of this stuff. But then you even have, you know, what's going on in Panjshir right now, and uh, and and the 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 junior Masood. Um, I mean, it's, 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 you know, we can, we can talk about the, the overt involvement in Afghanistan being like a 20 year affair, which, you know, it, it, it was, I mean, depending on if you want to call like massive shipments of, of arms in the, in the 80s. We could say the occupation. The occupation. There we go. Yes. The puppet government. (laughs) But, uh, but it's really inextricable from, from so much of the U.S.'s foreign policy, not just in Central Asia, but uh, but in the the East in general, um, you know, and since the starting since basically the seventies. Yeah, in your piece, and Ben, you just mentioned you you called the um, occupation in Afghanistan and Iraq the nine eleven wars, which I actually I had never um, actually heard them put together in that way, but I think is kind of a great way for then trying to understand, well, okay, so we understand that these were the two, two major, um, you know, foreign policy excursions that came out of 9-11, but also they were in the works for a long time. As Brace, you were saying, like the, the, you know, our involvement in Central Asia, of course, and in the Middle East goes back decades and decades, but also like quite literally the like really specific planning <laughs> for these, uh, for this involvement also goes back decades and decades. We have Wesley Clark, who was in the Pentagon back in the George H.W. Bush administration back around 1990. You heard people saying that they had plans to 
for uh, invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq, and then he added also Libya and Syria. So he that was back in 1990. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to downplay the importance of 9-11 because that's where things began implemented. And it was very clear that on that weekend when they were talking about what to do in response to the towers going down, they talked about both uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and agreed that uh, it would be better, I think, largely for public relations purposes to downplay Iraq for the time being. But that didn't mean that they weren't equally committing themselves to do both. And this national security directive that was discussed the day before 9-11, it's NSDP 9, not finally released, I think, until October of 2001, but it was drafted. We've never seen it, but it's very clear mm -hmm. that this secret directive was, it, it authorized the planning for Iraq as at the same time as it authorized the invasion of Afghanistan. I'll, I'll add that um, we, we briefly touched on, uh, or actually I feel like we maybe went into some detail about the <laughs> anthrax attacks in yeah. our, in the six part series that we did. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there were attempts to tie that Graham McQueen calls it in his book, the double perpetrator hypothesis that Al Qaeda had done the anthrax attacks with Iraqi anthrax, which of course was not true at all. In fact, the anthrax came from an American source, which we still don't know what that source was, but I think there were attempts to, to tie Iraq much more closely to the 9-11 attacks. It seems like there were attempts to tie, for example, Mohammed Atta specifically to the 9-11, mm -hmm. uh, to the anthrax attacks uh, with this allegation that he went to try to get a crop duster and things like this. So I think there, there definitely were attempts to, uh, or, or there were some people who were trying to make this connection uh, between Iraq and between 9-11. Uh, and obviously they did do that to, to a, a, a greater or lesser extent. I mean, uh, there was a lot of fabricated intelligence about uh, supposed meetings between Iraqi official intelligence mm -hmm. officials and some of the 9-11 hijackers, the alleged hijackers. So uh, they, as Professor Scott says, they ended up having to put it on the back burner. But I think there were definitely people pushing for it to happen earlier than it did. Uh, it just didn't quite pan out that way, but they they did get what they wanted in the end. I mean, that was something we heard a lot uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, and you still hear deployed today whenever official enemies of the U.S. are being talked about, is the word safe haven. They were talking about how Iraq was a safe haven for al-Qaeda, or then, and then it became Iran was a safe haven for al-Qaeda. And then, you know, you can see like Venezuela is a safe haven for Hezbollah too. And a uh, little word of advice to True and On listeners, you ever hear the word safe haven? Someone's, someone's trying to bullshit you on something. Because that is, that is so often how that's deployed. I think the most obvious safe haven now, it, it, I mean, which is a safe haven, is Idlib in Syria, where the Islamic State is, mm. you know, uh, enjoying some sanctuary thanks to the U.S. occupation, which is very strange, right? I mean, <laughs> but so is the fact that the U.S. killed the most effective opponent of ISIS just assassinated him, uh, Soleimani, recently. That, that, that's why mm. in the piece I wanted to, not that people necessarily wanted a hundred year history lesson or something, but I wanted to mention the long history of the West in terms of cultivating the most fanatical Islamist elements in the world. Uh, it goes back to the British Empire 
the British created the Muslim Brotherhood. It was founded uh, thanks to a grant from the Suez Canal Company, which, of course, you know, a pillar of the British Empire. Uh, and it was for the express purpose of combating nationalist forces that were emerging and socialists, you know, eventually also. And that's the use of these Islamists. The British come up with this idea and use the Muslim Brotherhood to that effect. And um, they, they back the Saudis also, you know, uh, as soon as oil becomes uh, this enormous uh, factor in international power politics. And once the U.S. takes over the role of the global hegemon of the capitalist system after World War II, then the Muslim Brotherhood gets support from, not, you know, that continues to get support from the Saudis and the U.S. The U.S. and the Saudis are intertwined. And the main uh, leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, Saeed Ramadan, in the 1950s, when the CIA and MI6 are trying to kill Nasser in Egypt, the, the, they're supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is carrying out assassination attempts with help from the Brits and the Americans against Nasser. Um, and this, you know, the Middle East would not be the way that it is, I I believe, were it not for the U.S. backing and the British before that backing of these elements. You can find video footage of Nasser talking about, I mean, laughing at the idea of requiring the hijab, for example. I mean, and Nasser had the heart of the hearts and minds of many people in the in the Middle East mm -hmm. and probably mm -hmm. some version of pan-Arabism would likely have won the day were it not for the backing of, you know, the Brits and the, and the U.S. and people like Mossadegh. These were the popular leaders and they were not Muslim fundamentalists. You know, they were the U.S. strengthened these elements uh, to end the Brits before that, uh, you know, all throughout the Cold War. In the 1970s, people are talking about a 40 year thing, but it really I think 1972 in Afghanistan is when we start to see CIA getting involved, supporting Islamists. And so I wanted to mention that also. And I'd just like to add a, a, another chapter of that would be in the mid 60s, I think 1966, when the, the Saudis, with finance from Aramco, which was still largely an American firm, it had not been nationalized yet, um, funded the creation of the World Muslim League, which was uh, an annual meeting of uh, terrorists. The, the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, is a bit like the Democratic Party. It has all kinds of people in it, not all of them terrorists by any means. But the World Muslim League was a much more pure example. It was Al-Qaeda types. Uh, and the world, uh, the, the WML and the W, they also had a, a youth uh, section. And uh, I, I, when I Googled for all these Al-Qaeda types who were causing trouble in the Philippines, and mm. let, let's not forget in, in Burma, what Burma's doing is terrible, but it was in response to the WML having organized the Rohingya to become more active so that Saudi Arabia was pushing itself very, very much so into the into Indonesia, which historically had been a moderate Indonesian country, but that's they're now combating very well-funded people. All of this is the World Muslim League, and that was with the help of Aramco, which was still largely an American company at that time. Yeah, and 
you mentioned Golbadin Hekmatyar, and I think he came up in our Deep State 101 episode, too, because he's Probably. He's coming up. He comes up in almost every episode we do, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I found a nice photograph of him at Getty Images of him sitting. It looks like he's in the White House or something. But I, don't, I don't think he was. But he was sitting in some, I, I believe, in a either, either someplace in Kabul that was more developed or wherever. But he's sitting there enjoying a 7-Up. Uh, and this was back in the 80s. And, and it's, a, it's a great photo of the fellow. Sounds um, very iconic, to be honest. It, 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 it really is. And he was in Kabul in 1972, around the time that the Asia Foundation, the CIA cutout, starts funding Islamists uh, in Afghanistan. Like something, for whatever reason, perhaps as a result of the breakdown of Bretton Woods and some recognition that oil perhaps was going to be more crucial in maintaining U.S. hegemony, uh, that they expand operations in the 70s not beyond just, you know, uh, the, the middle, the, the, what we think of as the Middle East, you know, uh, Iran, the, the Persian Gulf countries and so on, um, but into Central Asia, into Afghanistan, which had been left largely alone. I mean, it used to be like a hippie haven a long time ago, like a place that you could go mm-hmm. and smoke a lot of hashish and take this, the highway there and, 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 you know, go from Istanbul, I guess, into Kabul. Uh, before, you know, things go really bad. 1972 is also the year that the that institute at the University of Nebraska um, was set up, to, you know, the same institute that worked with the CIA later to create all those jihadi textbooks that the Afghans, that the Afghan Mujahideen used and that the Taliban still use today, even though they removed the, the pictures of humans. Because Can you explain about the textbooks a little bit for our listeners who might not know what those are? So in the when the U.S. decided that they were going to rely on Islamist fundamentals to, to fundamentalists to strike a blow against the Soviet Union, they wanted to deploy all of their you know clandestine arts to really shoring up support for this among the population there, and so they had they, they paid a whole lot of money to. Um, this center at the University of Nebraska Omaha, um, known as the Center for Afghanistan Studies, the one that was founded in 1972, and there's, there's still a website up for it today where they actually uh, boast about the great things they've done. They say, uh, "We never knew when we set this up that it would give us the experience to do all these things around the world." Um, at the time that that this was founded, this institute, Afghanistan was a peaceful country. There was no war, and the future looked bright. No one could foresee the history-making events that Afghans and Nebraskans would share. Okay, so moving on from that, the books that they use in the 1980s are, I mean, they're kind of, they're pretty outrageous. They're filled with these uh, sort of militant Islamist slogans and violent images, and they teach kids to count, not by counting like, you know, apples or puppy dogs, but with pictures of missiles, tanks, landmines, Kalashnikovs. Uh, dead Soviets, you know, counting the dead Soviets in the field, something like that. And the, all these statements about the Mujahideen who have, how are going to have to uh, obey Allah and willingly sacrifice their lives in order to impose Sharia law. I mean, this is how students were educated. And this was something that, you know, tens of millions of dollars to put these in the languages that they speak in Afghanistan uh, to do this. And so this, you know, this, the Mujahideen, are obviously a U.S. creation. And uh, even before that, people like Hekmatyar got support in the early 70s and other Islamists. 
to create this Islamist uh, kind of this force with a medieval mentality uh, that, you know, came to power in large part because of U.S. Uh, shenanigans up until the end of the Cold War. There's another country we should mention here, and that's Pakistan, because mm -hmm. uh, the, the Americans encouraged Pakistan in a in a long-term covert policy of stirring up the Muslims inside the Soviet Union. And one concrete example of that is that uh, for the first time in history, the Quran was translated into Uzbek. And it was translated into Uzbek uh, not, uh, not by the Muslims, it was translated by the, the CIA commissioned that translation of the uh, Quran into Uzbek. It's very ironical because in the end, when the American policy became military, they allied themselves with the dictator Karimov that the, is, uh, the Islamic, what is it, IMU, the Islamic, the, the, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, the IMU, using as a organization tool, the CIA translated Quran, uh, we changed sides. We went with the dictator, the man who boils his enemies alive, um, rather than with the IMU. But that was, the that was a Pakistan policy of spreading out into Central Asia. And meanwhile, we were doing something very similar with Turkey, who were also spreading out into the Turkic areas, Turkmenistan and so on. Um, and uh, it, it, it just appalls me that America, America is a smart country. How did it end up delegating this kind of capacity to wage really deleterious foreign policies to people who couldn't think beyond the end of their nose, who didn't see where this was all going to end up? Because it was very obvious from the beginning of the war in Afghanistan that this is how the war was going to end, just like the war in Vietnam. But of course, it's, it was very profitable in between, and so uh, the fact that it's a disastrous policy doesn't deter the people who are profiting from it. should talk about some of those people specifically um in your in this piece you you guys go in depth about a name that you've mentioned before ben um on our previous series although much more in depth in this article which and that's richard blee someone who um from what i understand we actually didn't really know and we still don't know that much about him other than from what we can put together He's incredible. He's got his hands all over Afghanistan, Iraq, and um, you know the events possibly leading up to and then after nine eleven. Yeah, well, I'll uh, to sort of situate him. I mean, um, you know, Aaron for this piece wrote quite a bit about um, kind of the American grand strategy in Afghanistan and and in Central Asia more broadly, which was uh, to be clear a bipartisan affair. I mean, Brzezinski was uh, Carter's national security advisor, mm -hmm. and he was really the the initiator of of the Operation Cyclone policy that 
led directly to to, to Al Qaeda. Ultimately, uh, was kind of the the success. Well, not even ultimately. I mean, arguably, ISIS is a is a further continuation on from those same groups. Um, but Blee was the the reason that I think that uh, Richard Blee is such an interesting person um, is because he he in in one man. Uh, demonstrates the continuation between uh, the the geopolitical goals. You know, he was on the ground with Kofor Black, uh, making deals with with the Uzbek government, um, setting up the K two airbase to to be what it was during the invasion itself. Um, he was he was creating these alliances uh, with Massoud and, and other leaders of the Northern Alliance uh, in advance of 9-11. I mean, starting, he, he was personally involved beginning in 1999. He and Gopher Black, uh, went to Uzbekistan. And so, uh, you know, he's, he's creating this, uh, he's, he's laying the groundwork for the invasion, essentially. I mean, he is preparing the ground, uh, literally, you know, setting up these agreements so that they can use, the Americans can use these air bases, uh, creating these alliances, you know, uh, we don't know his, uh, the degree to which he was involved in, in the, uh, assassination of, of Shah Massoud. Um, but I would suspect that he, he at least was aware of what was going on, uh, because he was creating this, he was creating this alliance with Massoud, uh, at a time when Massoud was very opposed to American involvement, uh, direct, you know, direct boots on the ground, American involvement in Afghanistan. Uh, and, and Massoud was very conveniently killed two days before 9-11, uh, likely with, with U.S. complicity as, as, uh, Professor Scott and, and Aaron, discussed in their earlier piece. Um, but I think that Blee, Blee's, uh, at the same time that Blee is doing this, uh, he is running the CIA's Alex station, the, the Bin Laden issue station, uh, where he is involved in uh, essentially protecting two of the alleged hijackers, Khalid al-Madar mm-hmm. and Nawaf al-Hazmi. Uh, I mean, the, the evidence that we talk about in the piece, I mean, it seems quite clear that he was aware uh, that they were in the U.S. Certainly, his subordinates were, and they tried to inform him of this. They they sent him cables about this fact. Um, and then after 9/11, uh, Tenet makes him the the first Kabul, or you know, there there perhaps had been earlier Kabul station chiefs that we don't know about, but certainly the first uh, one in a long time, the first Kabul station chief. So he's right there on the ground in Afghanistan post 9/11. Uh, able to uh, actually carry out these these plans, which he had personally laid the groundwork for. So I think that the that pattern of facts, his his involvement in the planning for the invasion before 9/11 had happened, uh, his involvement in creating the pretext for the invasion, uh, and then his I mean we don't know what he did in Afghanistan after yeah. the war started. I mean we there's there's very little information out there about him and what he did, but certainly he was in a very high ranking position after the war. Uh, began so uh, in that one person, it's it's very clear to see the the fact that um, you know nine eleven was was uh, a pretext for this invasion. It was not the real reason. There were these geopolitical considerations uh, that went into that uh, before beforehand. Yes, I just wanted to say that the the year of two thousand and one is one where the the discussions on what to do in Afghanistan are heating up, heating up, heating up. And uh, so much, you know, Steve Call did quite a good book, which summarizes what happened. There's a, there's quite a lot that's not in that book. And mm. I mentioned earlier, there's an NSPD-9, which led to the 9-11 wars, and that it should be central for our attention. 
But there were actually three NSPDs at that time, seven, eight, and nine. And we don't even know what seven and eight were about, except that they're related to nine. And uh, it's a symptom of just how little congressional oversight there is now of what's happening that, um, you know, there was a a 9-11 commission and predictably, very much like the Warren Commission after the Kennedy assassination, it was essentially a cover-up. The the most important aspect of what happened on 9-11 relate to COG, continuity of government. And the the report of the 9-11 commission they confirmed that COG was implemented that morning. When I put it in the book, two favorable reviews said that I speculated it was. No, (laughs) I quoted, it's out of the 9-11 report. But then in a footnote, they say that because this is all very secret, the commission never saw it. The only people who saw it were the chairman and the vice chairman and Philip Zelico, the executive director, who was the mastermind of the cover-up. So um, we're a country, and, and, and if you just carry it on a bit further down to uh, 2007, when uh, the, you know, the, they created a state of emergency. I sound like a scratch record here. I say this over and over, but it's very important that a state, two states of emergency were also created right after 9-11, and from a reform after Watergate, a state of emergency has to be renewed every year. It also has to be approved by Congress. It's never been approved by Congress, mm-hmm. uh, but it has been renewed every year. And I'll make a confident prediction that within a month, it will have been approved for another year by President Biden, just like Obama before, before him. And uh, in 2007, they augmented, they had some new COG elements as part of the extension of the emergency. And uh, there was a congressman, uh, Pete DeFazio from Oregon, who was being pushed very hard by 9-11 truthers to get to the bottom of this. So he asked to see what the new COG things were, and he was told he didn't have a clearance to do that, even though he was on the Homeland Security Committee. The whole committee asked to see what these things were, and were notified in writing, what they requested in writing, and they were notified they had no right to see it. Now, COG has been characterized as suspension of the Constitution. So we have a situation where a document or series of documents suspending the Constitution cannot be reviewed by the relevant committee in the House of Representatives. And uh, that's why I'm like a scratch record about saying we've got to terminate this state of emergency. Professor Scott, could you explain uh, just you know briefly, if you'd like, what, what you mean by continuity of government, COG here, just for some of our listeners? Yes. Well, I'm going to do that in part three of the article. Um, very briefly, since, uh, since World War II, particularly since the Korean War and a state of emergency then, there has been contingency planning for what would happen if America was attacked by a nuclear weapon and uh, was decapitated. And particularly after Sputnik, uh, the, the, uh, Eisenhower's cabinet authorized the planning for executive agencies 
to plan for the restoration of government once the uh, the the country had it been destroyed at the top mm-hmm. and um one of the things that they did was to um well so in a general way cog continuity of government refers it that was not the phrase used then but we can apply it backwards to all of this planning for to make sure that government continued and that changed in the 80 well it changed before but it, the change was recognized by an executive order of Reagan just before he retired in 1988, which uh, redefined the purpose of this kind of emergency uh, to cover anything that was declared to be an emergency by the president. And we see that in the 1980s, continuity of government planning uh, under the planners of that time, some of them were private. Two of them were very interesting. One of them was Dick Cheney, who at the, at the beginning was a congressman, uh, and at the end he was the chairman of Halliburton, which was building these big oil installations mm-hmm. in Central Asia, which is what the Afghan war was really all about. Um, and the other one was uh, Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, so for 20 years, they planned the continuity of government measures, or which was called in-house, by the way, the Doomsday Project, and that, that's probably the way we should think of it, the Doomsday Project. No longer, explicitly after 1994, they weren't worried about an, a nuclear attack anymore, but they were doing things like rounding up uh, supporters of the... Uh, of the El Salvadorians against their dictatorship. The, the supporters in this country, they had a big exercise in 1984. They didn't actually round them up, but they uh, sort of readied the, the detention centers to, so they could round them up. And then later, down then in 19, uh, 2001, Cheney and Rumsfeld are now in the government, and the Bush himself is not in the capital. So they become under the conditions of uh, COG, only one head of state can be, if the president is not is in the uh, thing, then the vice president has to leave. And Cheney did leave for 90 days. He lived inside a hollowed out mountain, which was part of the doomsday project. But on that day, uh, Bush was not in the country. So Cheney uh, under COG, told Bush he couldn't come back until 3.30, when essentially all the implementation of these kind of COG measures had been done. And then finally, I'm taking too long, but very quickly, uh, Cheney, went, when he went off to the hollowed-out mountain, he wasn't alone. He took about a 100 top-level bureaucrats with him, and they worked very hard for three months. And of course, we have no idea what they did, but we know that afterwards they come out with a Patriot Act. They come out with mm-hmm. the, the uh, act which authorizes the, the law, which authorizes uh, military action, not only in Afghanistan but really essentially anywhere. And we still have that law; it's been somewhat modified, not enough. Uh, so, COG. Uh, is a way of, and I'll just refer one one other thing it refers to, is a network which was initially started under Frank Stanton when he was head of CBS, 
one of the 10 private executives that Eisenhower chose to look after the country if there was an atomic attack. Mm. And I think Eisenhower turned to private executives because the alternative would have been the DOD, but the DOD was really quite suspect then because it was filled with Southerners who were furious at the (laughs) desegregation of schools, and you had all kinds of people inside the the Pentagon, what they call the defenders of the American Constitution, were one of them, were in contact with post-war fascists in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it sounds pretty awful to give things to private government. It would, maybe was better than giving it to the Pentagon of that time, LeMay and Lemnitzer and people. I think that so many people don't, uh, I mean, We've touched a little bit on continuity of government in our 9-11 series, but even when you say those words out loud, it sounds cooler to say COG, first of all, or COG. Mm-hmm. But when you say continuity of government out loud, I think people tend to kind of like tune out because they're like, okay, now you're talking crazy talk. But this actually did happen, like you say. Like Dick Cheney went away with a ton of bureaucrats and when they came out of literally a cave in the mountains in the retreat, they had rewritten the laws of the government, basically, none of which, um, or only some of which have been seen. And and that actually did happen. That was a consequence of 9-11. And we very much live in the government that they laid out in those, um, again, s- totally secret legal documents. One of the other things that... Um that we've talked about and that Aaron in particular, so maybe I'll, I'll just briefly say, uh, and maybe let Aaron say more about it, but, um, you know, we, we, as we've been writing this and as we've been thinking about, you know, how could it be that elements of the CIA, uh, would have been aware of some of the alleged hijackers being in the U S what would have given them the ability? How would they have had, um, the ability to do that? What, you know, how could they have escaped accountability for that even within the, within the government? How could they have escaped, uh, any oversight? And one of the things we've thought about is, is, uh, the role that COG may have played in that, uh, before 9-11, uh, as sort of this, uh, way of, you know, uh, as Aaron has put it, if, if COG is, is what you're going to implement, uh, when the, uh, very existence of the United States is threatened, uh, then they have essentially free reign to do whatever they think is necessary to to keep the U.S. Uh, in existence. Uh, but that can provide a, a useful pretext uh, for essentially kind of whatever action you want that you can ostensibly say is in the national interest. And as we've described, I mean, uh, Central Asia was, uh, be, you know, in addition to the to the oil itself, uh, it's the idea of how is the U.S. going to maintain its hegemony over its partners, over Western Europe and over Japan, you know, mm-hmm. absent control over Central Europe, absent control over Eurasia, that's in question. So, you know, could these cog elements have said, well, you know, if our if our continued hegemony over the, over the globe is threatened, uh, do we have the right in this situation to essentially do whatever we want? Can we break the laws of the United States? Can we escape oversight and can we use this cog mechanism as a way to do that? Uh, so that's that's p- part of what we've thought about as, as a way to explain how it can be possible that these elements uh, can have escaped uh, the, the accountability for what they did uh, in the aftermath of the attacks. Yeah, I, I, this era of, the, of Central Asia becoming 
such a crucial part in the mind of uh, the sort of top of the American foreign policy establishment, it, it goes back to the end of the Cold War. So we, we talked a little bit about Operation Cyclone in the U.S. in the 70s, and you know, I even mentioned the stuff of Muslim Brotherhood with the British Empire and so on. But after the Cold War ends, it becomes clear that there is a little bit of a vacuum and around the time of like the Panama, the U.S. involvement in Panama in like 1989 and in the Iraq war, it was becoming clear to policymakers that even even at the end of the Soviet Union, but, you know, much less or especially after its decline or after its fall, its dissolution, that there wasn't any force in the world that could act to, you know, as a countervailing element against the U.S. decision to project power wherever. And so these places came up for grabs. So, for example, Yugoslavia, which had been sort of a tolerated socialist country during the Cold War, became targeted by the U.S. to be broken up. I mean, it was just that sort of large socialist country could not really be tolerated, you know, post-Soviet Union. And so they went in, set about dividing up that country. One of the things they did there was they redeployed and redirected some of those Mujahideen type assets, including people who had been involved, directly involved in training the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. So instead of the U.S. saying, you know, the U.S. policymakers and the elites in Saudi Arabia and wherever, saying, let's mothball these Islamists, teach them to farm or something, do something else with them, stop blowing things up. They just redeploy them as uh, pawns in U.S. foreign policy to uh, further U.S. hegemony. So they're used in Bosnia, you know, trained by Americans in the earlier parts uh, of the 90s under Clinton uh, with with help from the Saudis. It's sort of a joint, just like uh, the Mujahideen mm-hmm. effort was, just like Iran-Contra was. Iran-Contra also involved using... Some of them trained in the New York area. Yes, some were trained in New York after the Cold War ends. Originally a training program for Afghanistan, but the Afghan war was over, so they were going to Bosnia. And a good deal of the literature that was being circulated in uh, in uh, Sarajevo and places was being printed in New York and sent sent over there. And it, it ended four years later. Most people don't remember Kosovo, but the same thing happened. It's, it's happened in Bosnia. First of all. These uh, Mujahideen go in with support from the CIA. This was attested to by a Dutchman who happened to be there who filed a very long report about it. And then the U.S. Army has an an enemy so that the U.S. Army goes in to deal with the people that are there because of the CIA. This is very worth mentioning now because I don't know whether this is true or not, but now the, we have the ISIS Khorasan, who mm-hmm. are obviously a presence to deal with. They accelerated the U.S. departure, but the Taliban did not do. The ISIS-K did. So we have a new target in, uh, to, to fight with in Afghanistan now that the Taliban are no longer our target, and Biden has already announced that we will come and get you. And there have been charges for some time from both Iran and Russia reporting that people on the ground have seen helicopters mm-hmm. uh, flying into the areas. In, they're mostly in the northern part where the old Northern Alliance of Massoud used to be. 
there is now a sizable uh, contingent of ISIS-K and uh, a very good journalist, Pepe uh, Escobar, who's a Brazilian, says that there was a lot of them came from Idlib in Syria at a time that America was in charge there and was very glad to see uh, to see uh, these mujahideen leave the area that they were trying to control there. And there was what was called the Daesh airline that was ferrying them from Idlib in Syria to northern Afghanistan. As I say, I don't know if this is true, but I think we should be very keen to find out the facts about this and not just sit back and watch Joe Biden go to war against ISIS-K. Yeah, I, I think in terms of ISIS-K, I know that your reports you're talking about, and they happened both in, like you're saying, in Syria and in Afghanistan, where people said that they had seen, uh, you know, these sort of airlifts happen. Uh, I believe, I believe the one was actually in Raqqa, not in, not in Idlib, or you know, maybe Deir ez-Zor. I, I don't think it was in Idlib, but the in Afghanistan, I mean, that has been, um, you know, the reports of I think sixty like top ISIS-K leaders or whatever taken by the, uh, taken by the U.S. and in it, it's it's ISIS-K in Afghanistan has been a really sort of odd thing to watch over the past few years because there was all these sort of alarmist news reports about how the U.S. had provided air support to the Taliban uh, during one of the Taliban's battles with ISIS-K. It was sort of like this, it was, there was like a series of sort of like shock reports that came out about it, which, which actually I don't think really caught on among the general public because people, I don't think really care about ISIS anymore. Um, but it, it's it's funny too. I mean, it, even the name ISIS Khorasan, uh, obviously, it refers to a region there. But well, what it what it implies is because Khorasan, most of Khorasan is in Iran, so yeah. that uh, if you uh, if you're fighting ISIS K, you may find yourself fighting in Iran. Well, the the, the it just reminds me too of this sort of uh, media, probably intelligence creation of Khorasan, which was supposedly. A, a group that was like the hardcore members of ISIS, like this secret cell at the top of ISIS who were going to create all of these other, you know, terror attacks. And this was like the real new nerve center. And there was all these sort of reporting about them, I think like maybe like around five years ago. And it turns out to absolutely be totally unsubstantiated. There is, there is as far as we know, zero proof of a group called Khorasan that is within ISIS as opposed to ISIS Khorasan. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's you know, back to the article a little bit. I, there was one character that that really stood out, and I had I, I knew about this guy, but I I never really like dug into him. And that's I believe Ben in one of your sections about Ali Muhammad, um, who went from I think is a really good um, not cipher, but he's emblematic of U.S. foreign policy in a way. Uh, you know, the guy goes from from being in, involved in the uh, the assassination of Anwar Sadat, who, for all of his manif- manifold problems, uh, no, not a great guy. Uh, you know, much like Nasser was was under attack by Islamists for basically his entire rule. Um, and then, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of let you talk about this guy, but I, I think he is really like kind of key to almost like he goes from each part of the U.S.'s foreign policy just like so smoothly. Yeah, he's a real connecting line. Um, and I, I became aware of him from Professor Scott's work, reading about him in The Road to 9-11 and several of the, the articles that he had written. Um, and I think that, 
you know, uh, he, he, when I became very interested in this, when I was very young, somebody gave me the, the boondocks anthology comic comic series, mm-hmm. uh, when I turned 13 and one of the comics in there, Aaron Magruder, uh, great props to him, uh, in the immediate aftermath of nine 11, the first thing that he was talking about was the fact that Reagan had supported the Mujahideen. That was, he, there's a bit where Huey calls the FBI terrorism hotline. And, uh, he says he wants to report Ronald Reagan, who I guess was still alive at the time. And uh, that was when I became interested in this topic to begin with, this, this idea that the Americans had, had built this network up. Um, and I was always curious, you know, as I was sort of researching this over the years, you know, can we find a point where it's clear, you know, Al-Qaeda is the designated, you know, the Mujahideen, you know, they were the good guys, they were helping us fight against the Soviets. Can we find a time when the Al-Qaeda is definitely the bad guy, and yet, you know, there's still evidence of American support for these people, and I think Ali Mohammed is one of the clearest examples because, you know, he was so. I mean, in, in terms of where he got to start, as you mentioned, he he was involved in in assassinating Omar Sadat, uh, who who was kind of a, a kind of the, the tail end, kind of this degraded Arab nationalism that that had mm-hmm. still hung on to some extent uh, in the form of Sadat in in Egypt anyway. Um, and and Mohammed was probably an Egyptian uh, intelligence officer. Certainly was in the the Egyptian military. Uh, he, he goes to, uh, Hamburg, uh, go, finds the CIA office, basically volunteers himself, um, and then immediately goes to a mosque and announces that he's been sent there by the CIA. I, I am personally of the belief that this was some kind of deception operation to sort of sheep dip him and, um, make him mm. not as closely aligned with the CIA because it's sort of, oh, he's being a double agent, which is sort of the cover story that the media has gone with is that he was a double or triple agent. Um, but uh, what he ends up becoming involved in, uh, all of this time, by the way, so he he becomes an Egypt, uh, he becomes an American military officer. Uh, and he goes, uh, he, was a, he was a supply sergeant at uh, the ironically named JFK uh, School uh, for Special Warfare in uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And there was a, quite a bit of um, pretty decent reporting about Ali Mohammed in the aftermath of 9-11 uh, from some reporters in North Carolina, uh, just because they, they were able to get in touch with people who knew him uh, at Fort Bragg. And, uh, you know, he would brag to his, he, he would get leave to go to Afghanistan and fight and train people in Afghanistan, Mujahideen fighters. This was during the 80s, um, the late 80s. And he would bring back war trophies and, uh, you know, he essentially uh, was was kind of parading them around. But during this time, he was going to New York City uh, and he was involved in Omar Abdelrahman's uh, cell, that uh, Al-Qaeda cell, previously had been known as uh, Maktab al-Kidamat, uh, but became Al-Qaeda in, in Brooklyn, in New York. And he was training, uh, among other people, El Sayed Nasser, uh, who was uh, not actually convicted for the assassination of America Hain, but was convicted for some related charges and certainly was the one who fired the gun at him. Uh, and, and Ali Mohammed was observed by the FBI uh, in 1989 training El Sayed Nasser to shoot uh, at a gun range in Calverton, Long Island, uh, and, and Nocera was, was according to the FBI, using the 357 Magnum that he later used to shoot America Hain. The FBI saw all of this. The FBI was aware of this. And despite this, um, you know, they, so, so Nocera obviously was at the scene of the murder. He fired the gun. They, uh, went to where he lived, uh, found all of this training material from Fort Bragg, 
They found videotapes of Ali Mohammed. And obviously the FBI, having observed the two men shooting together in a gun range, clearly should have been on to Ali Mohammed, and yet they were not. Uh, they left him alone. And, and in fact, the, uh, you know, the FBI rolled in and, and basically just took all of the NYPD's evidence in this case, uh, which is uh, quite alarming. So they were protecting him at this point. Uh, you know, later on, uh, he goes to pick up a, a, a known associate of Osama bin Laden. He, he was living in, uh, I, think, I think not long after the uh, Nasser assassinated Mary Kahane, he he moved to Sacramento and he drove up from Sacramento to Vancouver to pick up uh, a good buddy of, of Osama bin Laden's. Uh, and then he was ended up being detained. Basically, the, the person that he went to pick up had a, had a false passport. This was identified by Canadian Customs. And so when Ali Mohammed comes around asking about him, uh, they're sort of like, okay, let's detain this guy too, because he's obviously an associate of this guy. And uh, he ends up telling them, hey, uh, this was this was like a two, I think this was in January of 93, and the 93 embassy bombing happened in March of 93. Uh, and he tells them, call the FBI, call this number. And they call the number, it's an FBI agent in, in San Jose, and they let him go. And two months later, the, the uh, 93 uh, World Trade Center bombing happens, and he trained several of the people in that, uh, in that cell. You know, later on, uh, he, was, he was the person who did the key on the ground planning uh, for the 1998 embassy bombing. Uh, he, he set up a safe house in Kenya, in, in uh, Nairobi. He even observed and, and took photographs of the American embassy and other facilities in Nairobi, uh, provided those photos to Osama bin Laden, who, who allegedly chose the spot where the truck bomb would go off. Uh, and he was arrested as a result of that. Finally, they, they, uh, they, they got him after that. Uh, but you know this this long history of him having been protected on multiple occasions, despite having been very clearly involved in uh, what you'd have to call certainly what the FBI would call international terrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's very alarming, and given his given his earlier status in the U.S. military, uh, his status as a likely CIA agent of some kind, uh, it's it's very concerning, and it and it's a it's illustrative of that very direct connection between. You know, the 1980s, Mujahideen. I mean, lots and lots of people, mainstream writers about this, try to put a hard dividing line where mm. they were our friends and then they weren't our friends. But I think Ali Muhammad is a good example of, you know, this is a guy who's training people to go fight in Afghanistan, part of this Operation Cyclone mission very clearly. And then he's involved in this cell, which which we mentioned, uh, the Brooklyn cell was one of the key areas that was uh, supporting uh, uh, these groups that were going to Bosnia. Uh, and he was very directly involved in that. So uh, it's a it's a case that I think is is uh, has not been fully explained the best that uh, writers who don't want to fully get into issues of American state complicity with this kind of thing they'll they'll talk about him as a double or triple agent but I think uh, I don't think he was playing anyone I think well he may have been playing the FBI but I think there were certainly people who knew what he was up to and endorsed it uh, and and they provided for his protection because he was very useful to them. Well, I think too, uh, you know, his his current location, which by the way is unknown and has been unknown for something like two decades, uh, he's been awaiting sentencing. But part of his arrangement, uh, I, I've read in a couple of places, is assisting the U.S. Got a government. Separate uh, trial, and we don't know what the result was. Exactly. Yeah, we we don't know. We don't know where he is. Yeah. Uh, and that is. Uh, I mean that's it's pretty outstanding, but yeah, I mean yeah, that could lead one to a number of conclusions there. 
Um, I mean, if you were to have a fair trial of him, a lot of information would come out, uh, yeah. I suspect. I mean, but that's... I think I mean, even if you had an unfair trial of him, a lot of information <laughs> would come out. Yeah, man, I would love to get documents on him. That's that's for sure. That, that era is that era of the 1990s. We already talked about Bosnia a little bit, but at the same time that the embassy attacks are happening, the U.S. is supporting Al-Qaeda or the Kosovo Liberation Army in you know, in Kosovo against the Serbians and the Al-Qaeda one KLA brigade and the KLA itself is a, is a terrorist organization that's been accused of everything from heroin trafficking, human trafficking, even human parts like organ trafficking. Like they have, there's, there's a pretty, there's hardcore a mafia organization as there is. And they were there. The KLA, a KLA battalion, was led by Muhammad Al Zawahiri, the bro, you know high-ranking Al Qaeda person, the brother of Ayman Al Zawahiri, uh, at the same time. So, uh, and and similarly, the U.S. had set up sort of a beachhead in Azerbaijan earlier in the '90s, and from there, jihadis, you know, the the, the U.S. and people like Richard Secord, again, these names from Iran Contra keep popping up, sets up. This uh, eventually uses jihadis and sets up an operation in Azerbaijan. There's eventually a coup and a U.S. friendly government's put in. And from there, jihadis are coordinated to go into Chechnya. And if you saw Oliver Stone's interviews with Putin, he says that he confronted Bush about this and said, I have information that you're supporting these jihadis in Chechnya. And uh, why, are you, why are you doing that? And Bush says, oh, I don't know anything about that. I, I, I think Bush may have been telling the truth, but, you know, the point is that this stuff was ongoing. And, in, and you know, Peter has this book, uh, Drugs, Oil, and War, right, which uh, Dan Ellsberg blurbed and said it makes other books on the subject seem like government propaganda written for children, which is a great blurb. But this whole, this book is about how uh, drug trafficking, oil operations, and U.S. military and paramilitary uh, you know, interventions often are intertwined. And in this case, you have Kosovo, where you have this jihadi and this, these, this mafia drug trafficking organization involved there. The U.S. eventually sets up a huge military base there uh, called Camp Bond Steel, which I think was built by Bechtel for a, a huge amount of money. It's so big you can see it from space. And it's also along the route of a planned pipeline, which may have been already completed, the AMBO pipeline, which went from Azerbaijan to Albania, basically. Right? And it also, well, the U.S. goes into Afghanistan, and Afghanistan becomes the heroin, the leading heroin producer in the world. And as I understand it, it's Kosovo mafia organizations that are among the biggest traffickers for this uh, you know, system set up to get Afghan heroin to Europe and to the rest of the world. And so, you know, th these, these are areas that the 9-11 Commission should have gone into or journalists should have gone into. They're in different books. The Road to 9-11 has a lot of this stuff. It was published by University of California Press. So it wasn't published, you know, by uh, Alex Jones Press or anything like that. I mean, this is like well footnoted and documented. These are things that demand explanation if, if not like before, after 9-11, but then again, when we are still doing the same things in Libya, I mean, we, the Al-Qaeda tried to assassinate Gaddafi with the help of the Brits in the late 90s. That's another operation here. The guys that we used, like um, uh, the person who was the head of the Libyan Islamic fighting group, was had previously 
pledged loyalty to Al Qaeda. Um, Belhaj, I think, is his name, right? And, and that's another person that we're using, you know, 10 years after 9 11. So, uh, you know, I, what to make of ISIS in this context? You know, it's, it's uh, much of the things that they're doing are still to this day useful to the US. The, the head of ISIS K is supposed right. to be uh, somebody who is in the Haqqani network. And that mm -hmm. takes us back in time. The, at the beginning of the support from the U.S. support for Mujahideen in Afghanistan, we gave it to the Pakistanis' preferred candidate, Hekmatyar. Well, Hekmatyar had no popular support in Afghanistan at all, so he maintained his presence there by being a drug trafficker. And by the time he became, by some reports, the leading drug trafficker in the world, it was time for the CIA to withdraw their support from Hekmetyar. So we transferred it to the Haqqani network. The Haqqanis are a big family that are on both sides of the Afghan-Pakistani border. And they were very, pro, they were very much uh, favored also by the Pakistanis. Well, when America went into Afghanistan and was trying to create a client government in Kabul that would be independent, uh, the Haqqanis became anti-American, but they had this tradition of being in the past American. And the man who is very high in that Haqqani network is supposed to be the man who's now heading ISIS-K. So you, in a sense, the flags keep changing, but the, the, the networks remain the same. Peter, you've done a lot of work around, I mean, precisely what we're talking about, uh, you know, the, I'll say, uh, intersection of drugs, oil, uh, money, and uh, clandestine and overt warfare. Uh, I, I think there is, I mean, really nothing that brings all of those things together quite like the post 9-11 wars in such a uh, surface or such, excuse me, in such an obvious way. Um you know, I think a lot of your analysis has been really, really valuable um, along these lines, and uh, and 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 this is this is part of your, I believe, conception of what the deep state is, or at least a section of the deep state. This sort of like uh, the criminal aspect of it. Um, and could you could you talk a little more about like what the deep state did to bring us into Afghanistan, like what they gained from these sort of things? Well, I think the situation was pretty clear in the 90s that uh, people like Cheney, who at this point is, as I said, cha the chair of Halliburton, that is developing oil uh, uh, installations for Exxon and for Chevron, primarily in Kazakhstan. Uh, the theory then was that the, the most of the world's oil reserves were in Central Asia. And Brzezinski, who uh, has a 
connection to uh, COG that uh, I won't mm-hmm. develop at length here, but he and a man called Samuel Huntington, when they created FEMA for Carter, the Federal Emergency Management Association, uh, Huntington joined the board of the advisors to FEMA and was there, I think, until he died in 2008. And Brzezinski, not the overt connection after he left the Carter administration, but he became an advisor for the Bush administration, even though he was a Democrat. Uh, and Brzezinski, as in, in the same time that he was advising the H.W. Bush administration, he wrote a book uh, which said, in essence, that we can, we have to control Central Asia. What he really means, I, I knew Brzezinski personally. He was at the student at McGill at the same time I was in a class of four, which was discussing nationalism. And Brzezinski's agenda has always been the liberation of Poland, and it was then. That's why he was willing to boast about having supported the, uh, the, 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 the creation of al-Qaeda. He said, what's more important, the liberation of Eastern Europe or a few angry Muslims? He said this, and the year he said it was 1998, which was three years before we were going to find that it talking, the question of a few angry Muslims was going to be pretty important for America. But he wasn't alone. There was also something called PNAC, the Project for a New American Century. And uh, again, I'm sounding like a scratch record for saying this, but they wrote this document in which they said, we need, we need a forward strategy for America in Central Asia. We need a lot of changes to be better equipped to deal with the rest of the world. And then they had a sentence which was, we're not likely to get this absent, maybe you can quote it better than me, absent some major event like a new, uh, I was going to say 9-11, no, a new <laughs> Pearl Harbor. And uh, this is... People were talking this way. Brzezinski said something very similar in his own book. And it's true. I mean, what they were saying is we would not have been going to the state of America that we're in now if there had not been an event comparable in size to Pearl Harbor. So the question arises is who is responsible for that event? And without answering that question, I'm just going to say that uh, there was there were Arabs undoubtedly who were training to fly airliners in America to fly 747s. They say of Musawi that he was very interested in learning how to fly them, but never once asked a question on how to land them. Uh, but I don't think those I don't think for a second that those Arabs ever thought of flying them into a skyscraper. They didn't begin to have that kind of capacity. Many, many of the, some, at least one of the people who's supposed to be in a pilot in 9 11, he, he couldn't even handle a two seater. So the idea of his handling a 747 is ridiculous. That conspiracy would have involved maybe hijacking a plane to take prisoners to be ransomed, or maybe 
simply because we were escalating by then to fly it into the ground as a kind of, uh, you know, uh, comparable to these people with uh, who carry bombs and blow themselves up. Mm-hmm. Then you, so way back in the Kennedy era, when the military was frustrated that we weren't doing enough about Cuba, they came up with something called Northwoods. And Northwoods was a, a military plan that envisaged actually simulating or exercising the hijacking of planes with as a false flag, that you blame it on the Cubans, and then we would invade Cuba. And this contemplated that some people may die. Now, there was never a Northwoods plan that contemplated that 2,000 people might die. But I've always wanted to say that I think there are three conspiracies involved in 9-11. There's the Arab conspiracy, which is irrelevant. And then there's a conspiracy to cause the implosion of the Twin Towers, which was extremely costly in terms of life and is what we most remember about 9-11. But I think that the people who I believe personally, and this is all, I can't prove any of this, uh, that there were people who contemplated a a Northwoods-type attack on the skyscrapers. And the best evidence for that is that when you look at the, pla- the the photographs of the second, we don't have any of the first plane, but we have video of the second plane, it doesn't slow down. It goes straight into that skyscraper at top speed when everyone admits that this is an extremely difficult thing to do when you're flying at 550 miles an hour. And then you also see, of course, on those same videos, that the, the buildings explode. Debris is thrown out. So much debris that they blame it for the downfall of uh, Building 7, which was two buildings away, even though Building 6, which was very badly damaged and caught fire, uh, because it had a steel structure like all of it, it survived. So there's the implosion, the building implosion conspiracy, which I think was local to New York the people who owned and controlled, not owned, but controlled the future of the, uh, of the uh, Twin Towers, which, by the way, were due to be condemned because of their asbestos problems. And then there's the, the Northwoods-type conspiracy in the middle, which uh, I think those planes were controlled from the ground. Because the, uh, I have a news story which says that it was already being tried out in an experimental way and that they, they actually had equipped uh, a, a 747 for this to happen. Well, if they, if they could do it for one, they could certainly do it for four. And uh, that's, all of this, of course, is speculation. We don't know, but we do know well, I, I should stop because I have many theories about this, but I <laughs> I'll say that people should uh people should check out Aidan Moynihan uh wrote some articles for the Journal of Nine Eleven Studies talking about um how these planes might have been controlled and in particular the the plane that Professor Scott mentioned 
uh, you know, the particular type of pain. This is not what we talk about in the paper, but I'm certainly interested in this well. And it is, it is speculation, but I think it's very interesting because as Professor Scott notes, and as we talked about uh, in that six-part series, these people were not good pilots. And so uh, Aidan Moynihan has written some interesting articles about how these planes might have been controlled and what the state of GPS-controlled um, uh, autopilot was at the time and the various experiments that had been done into uh, this kind of control on aircraft. Uh, so it's certainly the technology existed at that time, and there are certainly indications when you look at some of the things that these uh, incompetent pilots, according to their flight instructors, pulled off. Uh, it seems like a, a likely thing. Again, definitely speculation, but uh, something worth looking into. Uh, yeah. So, Peter, I, I actually I really wanted to ask you this question, sort of from the beginning. Here is that you are sort of known for coming up with the idea of deep events, and maybe for a little little backstory for our guests, maybe explaining briefly, or excuse me, for our listeners, explaining a little bit about what a deep event is and uh, what that might have to do with nine eleven. Thank you. Yeah, that uh, that I really do want to talk about. A, a deep event I define, or a structure, they, deep events happen all the time. Events that occur and an explanation is given for them, which many people immediately suspect is a cover-up. Some of them I call structural deep events because they have a permanent and important impact on American policy and indeed on American society. And uh, to give you an example, I'll give four examples of, of structural deep events. The first is the Kennedy assassination, which after which the CIA was empowered to merge its computers with the FBI. And so it brought the CIA into internal surveillance of America. Uh, there was Watergate, and I won't go into the details there, but... Uh, uh, it, it, too, had a series of lasting consequences for America. There was Iran-Contra, which is one of the few times where we actually see COG being mentioned in the hearings because Oliver North was conducting an illegal activity. He was, he was selling arms to Iran, which was forbidden by Congress, and not, in other words, forbidden by law. So we used a secret network uh, to do so. And the, uh, when he had to reach the American ambassador in Turkey and tell him to arrange for a certain plane to be landed with this illegal shipment of arms, and he, he didn't use the name Doomsday Network. He used, a, I think he called it the Flash Network or something. But it's very clearly what he was talking about. Um, and that is uh, a clue to the importance of the doomsday network in all of these events. And the last one, no, not the last one, but the next to last one being 9-11. The last one, I would say, being January the 6th. And when I, uh, when I, January the 6th happened and we began to see more and more aspects of it, I now think there were, obviously there was one conspiracy there, which was to keep, Trump in power. I think there were two conspiracies going on at the same time. Uh, the other one being to make heroes out of the FBI and to get these uh, militias, which were a major cause of concern, 
out, out into the open in an in illegal act for which they could be sent to jail, just like the kidnapping of Governor Whitmer, which the FBI knew about from the beginning and maybe actually facilitated in a way. But they, uh, they let it go long enough so that they could finally arrest people. And I think that they let... The, the 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 big explanation for January 6th is that they let it go on long enough so that again they could arrest people and and also I'm, I'm sure we will see huge budget increases for the mm. FBI uh, and the FBI in the media has become heroes even for people who used to criticize them for their the way they tortured Muslims after 9/11 and so on. Uh, so, are there any features that unite these deep events? In my book, the, 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 the reissued War Conspiracy, I have a whole appendix on similarities between uh, the Kennedy assassination and uh, 9-11. And I think I listed 13, and I don't think I listed the most important one of all which was, because I may not have been wholly aware of it at the time, that uh, for reasons I don't want to go into, the, the uh, Doomsday Network, this, this is a huge network, and a whole second alternative communication system, they spent something like $9 billion on it. Uh, they had already spent something like $200, billion, 200 million on it, under Kennedy, it, it only actually went active, I think, in the middle of 1963. And it did play a role in the Kennedy assassination. I'll just mention that, uh, you know, the Warren Commission looked very closely at the events in Daly Plaza. They looked at the first, the Dallas Police ne had two networks, Dallas Police One and Dallas Police Two. They looked very, very closely at those. They never looked at the network that was being used by the Secret Service that were there, which was part of the White House Communications Agency network, which was perhaps the key part of the Doomsday Network. And there was a local man in Dallas by the name of Jack Crichton who picked the first interpreters for Marina Oswald she went first with the with the Secret Service, and eventually the FBI, and this gets very complicated. But the man who picked that interpreter for Marina was a man called Jack Crichton, who was the head of the. And this sounds very boring. He was the head of civil defense for Dallas. Civil defense people associate with kids putting their heads under uh, under their school desks. So we don't take it very seriously. But believe me, there was very serious planning going on. Uh, in Watergate, uh, what caught my eye was that um, it was James McCurd. I wanted to say that, yes, he was part of the, uh, the uh, COG network for and his job was involved, I think, rounding up journalists and something like that. Um, and then uh, COG was involved, as I've already said, in Iran-Contra. The COG network was involved in 9-11. Um, and, and again, that would take a book. 
But uh, so I asked myself, are we going to learn that on January 6th, they, they implemented COG and it took, it was only about a month ago that I learned, yes, by golly, they did. And they had plans to move and maybe did move. There's conflicting reports. Some reports say they actually did move the congressional leadership, the top four, Pelosi, Schumer, McCarthy, McConnell, to Fort McNair, which is a COG facility. And they also, and there's again, there's conflicting evidence about this, but there are many reports who say that Pence was told to go there. And Pence, very much to his credit, in my view, refused to go. And there was, according to this new book, I, uh, I Can Fix, I Alone Can Fix It is the title of the book, because it's partly about uh, Trump and COVID, but it's also the last days of Trump. Um, according to this book, there was a big fight between Ornato, who was the head of the secret service detail for Trump, not for Pence, but for Trump. Ornato ordering Pence to get into the car, and Kellogg, who was Pence's uh, chief of staff, saying, no, don't do that. And uh, Pence and Kellogg prevailed. He did not get into the car. I think they use that network because pretty soon you have independently, they're all in different places, but uh, Pelosi and McCoddle and Pence all say, we are going to meet again in Congress at 8 o'clock and finish the business. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. So whatever way you want to play it, COG not only was implemented on January the 6th, or I'm starting to call it 1 slash 2 to parallel 9-11, um, uh, it, it played a part in the narration of what actually happened, and I suspect a much bigger part than we know at this present time. But those are deep events, structural deep events, and all of them involved the, news, the Doomsday Network. Another thing that 9-11 and 1-6, if we will, uh, have in common is the spectacle aspect, which I think, I mean, it was one thing about January 6th that we especially commented on is the, 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 the nature of it being like almost live on television constantly and on social media and the, the number of characters that emerged out of it and images and the fact that there were photographers everywhere able to document so much of it, that that kind of, all of that documentation has become part of the event itself in a way that's, that is very kind of, I don't know, new or unique, at least it feels, feels at least updated in a sense. 9-11, of course, obviously televised, but the, the spectacle nature of it for, you know, for people listening at home who think that some of this stuff sounds uh, you know, a little far-fetched or they listen to our series and they can't get behind certain things or, you know, okay, we understand. Um, okay. Continuity of government. You've got me. 
uh, Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and, you know, all of this going back and there's a kind of deeper network at work here. But when you get to the part where maybe there's uh, a more direct conspiracy involved, people kind of start to take, take a step back and say, that's too much. That's too much. I think that um, the, the, the spectacle aspect of these events plays such a key part. You know, when you lay out kind of how much is at stake, when you say what we're talking about is as Aaron has kind of termed exceptionism, that, these, that these events shore up this kind of power that allow um, these kind of deep operatives to operate, you know, extrajudicially, extralegally, um, that, that all of these are sort of required in order for the state to continue its own expansion, then, then that the spectacle makes sense. It becomes a key part of the event itself and indeed of the planning and execution of the event. I'd like to give you another example of this, and maybe the first example. And this is going right back to the Symbolese Liberation Army when we watched the incineration of mm -hmm. most of the SLA, because they only were a handful of people. Uh, I consider, and I won't de delay this program on the details, but I believe, and I almost have some personal awareness of the that the the whole SLA was a false flag. It was a deep event. It was structured. That essential to it is the fact that uh, Sinkwe, the the man who was uh, defreeze, the, the man who was the head of it, had been through a a, a mind alteration project at Vacaville Prison, headed by a man called Colston Walbrook, and uh, just happens by chance that uh, in the wake of the SLA, uh, his program was disbanded, and he was, in, he was in search for a job, and he came to, of all places, the English department at the University of California at Berkeley. <laughs> and the chairman, I was a very marginal member of that department, but the chairman decided that I was the one to review his, uh, his curriculum vitae, and I read it, and I saw that he had served in Vietnam with Pacific Architects and Engineers, P, A, and E. So I went to the chairman. I said, I hope you know that P, A, and E was the, one of the leading CIA civilian uh, uh, proprietaries in Vietnam. Because they, you know, they had to do a lot of construction of things. Some people have said, I don't know if it's true or not, that it was involved with, with Operation Phoenix that would be spectacular if true. But I do want to warn that false there's been false information put out to enhance what I have said. And somebody linked uh, the Westbrook, for example, with uh, the, the, the great uh, the man at UCLA who was interested in uh, use of drugs for mind alteration. Oh, like uh, Jolie West, uh, Jolie West. Yes, Jolion West. Thank you. If I can may say in my poem uh, uh, coming to Jakarta, I could say that uh, Jolion West got to uh, give three thousand, hundred thousand mics of LSD to an elephant, and he got to interview Jack Ruby. Both the elephant and Jack Ruby died. I had to take it out in the American edition because it was considered uh, libelous. Uh, 
he, he and the general i mean th this is a huge this is a whole huge separate program that yes it is true that uh, what was happening at Vacaville was part of a general program that West oversaw, but I don't believe the specific allegation made by uh, about West and uh, Westbrook, because uh, somebody the, the the source for that story is somebody who uh, or somebody of the same name at any rate in was denounced in Sweden as being a CIA double agent. So that's why I, I don't want to endorse the direct link between Julian West. Well, there is one definite link between the two is that, uh, is that Jolly West, I believe, was called in by Patty Hearst's defense, I believe, uh, yes, during, yes. during her trial uh, uh, about her involvement. In the that is a link, but it's not the link. Yeah, it's exactly. not the link I'm looking for. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm saying there is a link there. But anyway, I, I didn't drive home. That that event was televised with these new portable cameras. That that technology had only been uh, developed months or weeks before it was used in L.A. to witness the burning of her uh, of the S.L.A. six. I think they were in one building. Well, before we wrap up, can you guys all, maybe we can go around and you can give us your thoughts on 9-11 20 years later. Uh, maybe I could start. Uh, I think that, um, you know, we still live very much in the shadow of that event, despite the fact that it's been two decades at this point. And it is officially history, right? At this point, it is officially a historical event now that mm -hmm. it's been two decades, according to some schools of thought. And uh, nonetheless, despite the fact that, as I mentioned, these wars are supposedly over, um, you still see the continuation of these of these operations. As as Professor Scott mentioned, there's there's been a, a lot of talk. Actually, Alex Rubenstein, who uh, whose reporting I relied on quite a bit in the parts that I wrote, he he recently had a story about uh, this Daesh airline flying people from Syria to Afghanistan. So these, um, if that's true, then it's it means that this uh, this collaboration between uh, elements of the American intelligence agencies uh, and the supposed sworn enemy of, of Islamic terrorism are actually working hand in glove with one another. And, and this has been true for a very long time. And it seems that it continues to be true to this day. Um, and and uh, as we've mentioned, you know, Biden just today using ISIS Khorasan in Afghanistan as a pretext for an open-ended American right to strike anywhere in Afghanistan and presumably uh, potentially, as Professor Scott mentioned, in Iran as well with drone strikes. Um, so this logic of counterterror uh, against an enemy that, as we uh, demonstrate, I think pretty conclusively in this piece, acted very frequently with, with the complicity of the American security apparatus, uh, that logic is still at work today. Uh, it's a very concerning pattern. Uh, and it's one that um, is is effectively concealed from the American public through uh, state secrecy, but also through media manipulation and, and just the very basic fact that if uh, the, the first statement is the one that is heard the most widely, you know, Biden repeated again in his speech today that um, that this drone strike uh, actually, you know, was a strike against ISIS-K. No, it, it killed seven children and, and an American military contractor and uh, a, a worker for a 
an American NGO. It didn't have anything to do with ISIS K. Uh, so the, this this logic of, um, of of setting up these enemies, Professor Scott has called them the necessary enemies, uh, allowing them to operate, giving them complicity, giving them protection, sometimes giving them direct aid. Uh, it provides a pretext for for the uh, the these these as we call them deep state operators, but all but you know CEOs of major multinationals and business people and and people who see uh, dollar signs in these geopolitical manipulations. Uh, it gives them a pretext with which to operate with essentially a free hand. Uh, so I think I think uncovering the you know uh, we didn't talk about this we talked about some of the specific bureaucratic machinations. Uh, and, and it's a little bit arcane and complex, um, but it is worthwhile to look at to see how can it be that um, these agencies do this. And, uh, and I think uh, the other elements of the article connect that back to uh, the purposes of this, uh, this, this broader geopolitical strategy, which involves control of, of the world's major natural resources, obviously in the case of Central and West Asia, uh, most crucially oil. So uh, going forward, I certainly would not expect to see this logic change. Uh, and I think as long as these events are still shrouded in, in such a fog, uh, I think that they will be allowed to continue, sadly. And we should mention also natural gas. That's also the new frontier. There's a huge field of natural gas that was just uncovered in the Caspian Sea. It's going to help us get green. <laughs> okay, I'll go next so that Peter can uh, have the last word and hopefully read, uh, read a little bit for us. Um, I, in my academic uh work and my, my, you know, my dissertation, I sort of skirted the issue of 9-11 uh, because it's so radioactive. It, it, there's something about that particular issue that it, it's just, uh, it's, like a, it's like a naughty discourse of some kind to even mm-hmm. really talk about it much. Mm-hmm. There's some sort of like fear of a, a, you know, hegemonic spanking that you get to even bring the issue up, right? And I didn't want that. So I, I've always avoided the issue. This is the most I've really written about it like this. And, you know, I'm agnostic overall as to like how exactly the whole thing happened and so on. But the overwhelming amount of evidence that the U.S. before 9-11, you know, in a, in a, throughout the Cold War, through the 80s, in the 90s, right up to 9-11, used these jihadi networks, using uh, the Saudis as a sort of proxy to manipulate them and fund them. And the, and the Saudis have essentially infinite cash or may as well. Uh, and you look everywhere that they pop up, and what they do is further U.S. hegemony by and large. They're attacking Chechnya. Okay, that helps the U.S. They're in Azerbaijan. They're in Bosnia. They're in Kosovo. They're in Libya. They We mentioned earlier that elements have popped up in Burma or Myanmar, right, and uh, the Philippines also, and Indonesia. Like, if you, t- you ask the question, if al-Qaeda were just a sock puppet controlled by, you know, controlled remotely by the U.S. through the Saudis and, and the Turks and Pakistan, et cetera, et cetera. How, how differently would they act? Uh, you know, I think that's a question that we could ask. Um, and so, you know, what does this mean for the U.S. now that this war is winding down and you can look back at what people like Brzezinski are saying about how important Eurasia was, and then you look through the Obama administration and they're talking about the pivot to Asia and they're really worried about this Belt and Road Initiative which is to connect Eurasia. And this is what Brzezinski was talking about more than 20 years ago, saying that our hegemony depends on how long we can mm-hmm. keep anybody from you know, supplanting us in Eurasia. 
And so, you know, that's a context in which, with which we have to look at all of these episodes. And, you know, one of the seminal sort of polit- comparative politics uh, pieces that they have you look at in grad school is Charles Tilly, right? And Tilly talks about the emergence of the state. And he says the estate emerged as these kind of roving bandits who would offer protection from attacks. But like they were the attackers. It was a protection racket, basically. So this idea of the uh, state when it needs to legitimate itself, you know, staging the, its own sort of violence that other people need to be protected from is this goes back a long, long way uh, in the it's kind of in the DNA of the state. Uh, in the West. And so I think you have to keep that in mind when looking at both the domestic and international uses of these Islamist networks. Um, And unfortunately, or or fortunately, I think that the end of U.S. polarity, you know, unipolarity, the end of U.S. overwhelming dominance is going to, over time, if there's not a nuclear war that destroys us all, uh, going to sort of uh, eventually spell the end of these groups having so much power because I, I do think that stability with the U.S. hopefully eventually being kicked out of Central Asia that these uh, that this mode of operating in the world and this desire to dominate the world through all sorts of uh, overt and covert violence is just that the U.S. is going to lose the great game basically. It seems like the loss in Afghanistan is a step in that direction. And I think that that's really the source of all of this Islamist violence. And, um, you know, I, I hope that the drawdown of U.S. forces, the evacuation of U.S. forces in Afghanistan is going to set a domino effect of the end of the U.S. using this kind of like ultraviolence to maintain its hegemony over the world. Very well said. Um, Peter, uh, we'd like to kind of close out with what your your final thoughts on the matter are. Well, I'd like to pursue two separate channels of thought. One is, we didn't mention petrodollars in this show, but uh, the fact is that America's interest in oil, at one time it was interest in uh, acquiring it, but nowadays it's a financial interest. Uh, America's dollar is not based on what America produces domestically or, or internationally, because we're, we're, we've fallen way behind. We've become, just as Britain did in the 19th century, more and more of a financial power at the expense of our economy. We've actually exported a good deal of our productive capacity. The petrodollar uh, is guaranteed by OPEC, because America and Saudi Arabia worked out a deal in the 70s that OPEC oil would be dollar-denominated, so that if a third-world country needs oil, they have to buy dollars to buy the OPEC oil. Now, one or two uh, countries tried breaking that idea of OPEC oil being dollar-denominated. Saddam Hussein in Iraq offered to sell his oil for euros, and later on, uh, Gaddafi in Libya contemplated selling his oil for euros. Well, that was taken care of. Uh, there's, that was the end of Saddam and the, era of, the end of Gaddafi. Uh, and America faces a real problem in the future, and I myself don't see this, any easy solution. 
significant action on global warming is going to mean moving away from a petroleum economy. That's going to be very, very difficult for any president, American president to preside over because I don't see myself and I'm not, I don't know that they see any way of preserving anything like the current American standard of living, which is so artificially higher than the countries that are producing the goods that we consume. So that's one thing that I feel we have to think about when we uh, think of the seeing a more humane American foreign policy in, in, the, in Central Asia. Uh, we have to see a way of moving away from dependence on petrodollars. The, the bigger issue for me is that if I'm right in saying that 9-11 was a structural deep event uh, in which not, uh, the doomsday network, the COG network, plays a significant role, and if that proves to be true also of uh, January 6th, then I think America has to look much more closely at the similarities between these structural deep events, because I haven't, as I said, I enumerated about 13 between the Kennedy assassination, 9-11, the, the, the biggest one being that uh, Kennedy had been planning to withdraw troops from Vietnam, and four days after the, his assassination, that was converted into maintaining troops at the same level and beginning plannings for significant covert actions against North Vietnam. Um, if, if that's true, and uh, I think American scholars have to do something that nobody really, I, I hate to boast, but I don't know anyone else besides me who's done this, is to look at the similarity, and I've just scratched the surface. I don't, I don't feel I've done a very good job. But I, I do think that uh, others are, and I'm so happy that Aaron and you, Ben, the two of you, you are doing it now. And uh, it's a very pleasant surprise for me to find younger people who are doing what I'm doing. So it's very, it's very hopeful for me. But I think, and this uh, True and On Network is giving you airspace, by golly. <laughs> That's... <laughs> I, it's, it's a very pleasant change in my life, and I, I waited a long time for it, but I, I, I attach great importance to it because I think saving American democracy has to do, there always has to be secrecy, uh, but you, secrecy should be subordinated to the public establishment. And what's been happening recently, that that's become reversed, that the, the, the public establishment, the Constitution and the the uh, organizations of violence that are acknowledged and recognized under the Constitution should not be subordinated to a series of documents that the ch that a House committee is not allowed to see because they don't have the clearance for it. That's that's a situation that has to be reversed. We have to get secrecy back under control. Well, Aaron had mentioned that you wanted to read a little bit of poetry that you had written. Okay, I'm going to read from the Tao of 9-11, and there's quite a bit in here about 9-11, but I'm going to skip those parts. At the first emperor's tomb, the Chinese People's Republic shows you a preliminary movie in which 
This monument of empire is seen through the eyes of peasants who rose up in rebellion and smashed the terracotta statues we have come so far to see. I tried asking whether the government is more in favor of the tomb or of its being smashed. The guide answered, both. We think the Tao of history contains both the bright yang of order and the dark yin of revolt. So I said, would that mean right now the yin is the Falun Gong? A short silence. Then, you must understand that in China there are some things we do not think about. I know why I'm remembering this. There are things we don't think about in America. Things I don't want to think about myself, like the flood of emails from Russians whom I have never met about Far West, a matter group almost unknown and yet so powerful it is said to manipulate states for the ends of the drug traffic. Spreading violence in an organized route from Afghanistan and Kosovo to New York. Just as Al McCoy and myself both promptly forgot about the vet who refused to talk to us after they firebombed his jag, not wanting to face what it means that you can sell drugs in a DEA sting and still be released when you tell them you are a CIA informant. Two kinds of businesses, those which flourish from peace and the strengthening of law, and those which require the opposite, zones of incessant chaos like Chechnya, Colombia, Afghanistan, where drugs can be grown or trafficked under the watch of PMCs, that's private military companies. Increasing income disparities, the sign our state is declining. The homeless we no longer support and have grown used to not thinking about as we step across them towards our ATMs. What Sallust and Arnold discerned in Rome and Victorian London Privatim opulentia, publici egestas, wealth for the, pri for the private and poverty for the public, until the republic is suborned by those forces we cannot see, for which the intellectual price is a shrinkage of our culture towards the trivialities of narcotic distractions and undecipherable poets, and expansion of empire with help from Al-Qaeda, until now there are American troops from Kyrgyzstan to Kosovo. The American Dilemma. To heal this world, we must become intimate with it, but the search for political truth will lead one deeper and deeper into falsehood, so we all end up like the good Germans not thinking about who caused the Reichstag fire, 
or the hundreds of people we do not know taken off to secret camps or distant countries. Uncertain as always whether this republic is past saving or whether some of us still tread the perilous path of the future, part of me just meditates on the new and more flourishing wildlife that is improving Point Reyes ten years after the Great Mount Vision fire. From the glories of the Tang Dynasty, I recall only one date, the year the usurper An Lushan drove both Wang Wei and Du Fu far from the corrupt court into the mountains where, for the first time, they were free to write the only poems we remember. Well, like we said at the beginning of the episode, we have a lot more 9-11 content coming in the next week. Um, but I think that Professor Scott, who we, you know, as Brace so eloquently said, you know, whose work has really informed a lot of the stuff that we've spoken about on the show and we the way that we've sort of framed a lot of our own um, investigations and research into... Uh, deep, deep, deep political networks and deep political events. Um, I think that he gave us a lot to think about and certainly, um, you know, we're going to link to some of his books and some of his poetry because you guys should definitely check out his work. You can learn a lot, a lot more reading his books for sure. I know I have. Yeah. I, I, I was really honored that professor Scott came onto the show. Um, I've been, aware of and reading his work for a long time. Obviously, we've referenced it in many episodes. Um, and he's sort of just a titan of the genre, I, I guess you could say. Um, mm. I will also want to say, at 92 years old, he definitely figured out recording the, the way that we do better than like maybe a third of our guests. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The guy, 100%. Yeah, the guy is sharp as a goddamn tech. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, hopefully we will speak to him again sometime. And of course, Aaron and Ben always pleasures to have them on. And, uh, let's just, uh, let's close this bad boy out because uh, we've been out of recording for 17 hours. Um, <laughs> well, I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We are of course joined by producer Young Chomsky, who I believe wrote a special little music for this episode. And the podcast is called <laughs> True Anon. They're both laughing at me. This is humiliating. Oh, Jeski just made the funniest face. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.